evening, Mr. Kane. There is a man. There is a man. A certain man. A certain man. And for the poor, you may be sure that he'll do all he can. Who is this one? Who is this one? His favorite son. His favorite son. Just by his action, has the traction magnets on the run. Who loves to smoke? Who loves to smoke? And Georgia Jones. <laughs> I wouldn't get a bit upset if he were really broke with wealth and fame. Welcome to Michael and Us, I'm Will Sloan, and with wealth and fame, he's still the same. I'll bet you're five if you're not alive if you don't know his name. It's Luke Savage. It doesn't rhyme, but but <laughs> respect the hustle. As Luke and I so often do when we meet each other, we were watching our favorite YouTube personalities, <laughs> Cool Duder and Wet Movie One. You know, longtime real fans of the show will know Cool Duder and Wet Movie One are two YouTube vloggers, and they were great friends for a while, but they had a falling out. Mm-hmm. And Wet Movie One has this really great video called Together Again, which, you know, got my hopes up. It's like, oh, it's like John and Paul are back. But you unfortunately, know? you fell for the, you fell for for the clickbait, the thumbnail. It's the oldest trick in the book, Will. It was an hour-long video of Wet Movie doing like a live chat with his viewers. And one of them was suggesting, hey, you ever going to reconcile with Cool Duder? And he said, you know, I've been thinking of calling him up because I got to say that would be killer content. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I'm not sure. You know how Sean is. You know, it might not it might not be so easy. Um, but, you know, what if, what if I called him and recorded it oh, well i don't know i'm worried about being sued you know what are the legalities of that <laughs> and th- this is actually just this this one moment is maybe my favorite moment that's ever been in a cool or a wet movie video where he's talking about reconciling with his friend of a decade strictly in terms of it being like a commodity and he's publicly musing about that on camera live on a google hangout or a or a youtube stream or something it's like Post, post, post modernity. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. But look, we're not here to talk about Cool Duder and Wet Movie. Yeah, you just had to get that in before we proceeded to uh, the, the meat of the night. We're here to talk about culture and politics. Folks, it's been a big week for both. <laughs> I can't always do my trademark transitions. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we got to do our perfunctory talk about the Democratic primary sing, which... You know, I guess if people are getting tired of that, uh, let us know. But, uh, you know, I've got a bad case of Biden brain at the moment. Um, if people look through my last month, month and a half of Jacobin articles, I've been writing almost exclusively about the Democratic primaries. Probably got to turn away, uh, you know, to something else for a little bit. Most other, people aren't paying attention. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to burn out. But yeah, when you when you start thinking about uh, the campaign in granular terms, you know, not just thinking about the heavy hitters and the things you actually care about. But, you know, I've done I have literally done a deep dive into John Delaney. Like that, that's the level we're talking here. But we're talking about the Democratic frontrunner, Joe Biden. Uh, has he done anything? Uh, what, what What's new? <laughs> <laughs> so people will have seen at the Iowa State Fair last weekend, you know, Biden had, you know, even for somebody who is, uh, you know, described, I think, kind of imperfectly and has been for some time as gaff prone, you know, if we, if we can just go with that frame uh, for the time being. But Biden had, you know, if you can call them gaffes, he had a slew of them that I think even for him was kind of record breaking. In the span of, you know, 10 days, maybe less, he, you know, confused Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May. He said he was vice president during the Parkland shootings. I think he did that twice. He got the locations of the two mass shootings last week wrong. He had a number of kind of trademark Biden verbal flubs. He said, uh, we choose truth over facts. 
which coming from the mouth of someone other than Biden could actually be a kind of profound uh, metaphysical statement. But yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think that's what uh, he meant by it. On another uh, occasion, he said, you know, poor kids are just as bright and talented as white kids. And, you know, if anybody saw footage from his rallies at, at the fair, his, you know, his kind of public speaking, I mean, he's kind of so slow and, and enervating, you know, and this this is coming... I guess just a week or shortly, or maybe a little longer than that after, you know, the New York Times published these great figures about um, the number of donors that the individual candidates had and kind of where they're distributed geographically. Biden basically only led in Delaware. That was the only place he had any kind of concentration of donor support. He also has less than half the number of supporters uh, or donors, the individual donors that Bernie Sanders had. And there are real shades of I mean, this is a bit like Hillary Clinton in 2016, but worse, um, because Hillary Clinton, I think, did have, you know... She had a constituency. Yeah, a a real constituency and and real fans. But, you know, there was also something kind of astroturfed about her campaign. You know, while Bernie Sanders is holding these huge rallies, she was not able to kind of match that. You know, there wasn't the same, you know, grassroots dynamism or whatever to, to her campaign. But she was the presumptive front runner, and and you know she did uh, she did end up getting a lot of votes. With Biden, you know, there's something of that, but but kind of worse. You know, his campaign so far has had a lot of you know it's limited in terms of the public appearances. You know, big policy announcements, things like that. As with Clinton, another parallel, it's mostly been going to these kind of big fundraisers and telling rich people, you know, don't worry, nothing's going to change. It's 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 all good. There's even less of a message in his campaign than there was with Hillary Clinton. Less of a story being told. I wrote a Jacobin piece this week, which I think will be out by the time we put this out. I wanted to write about Biden, but I really wanted to situate him within the broader equilibrium of American politics as things have played out for the last few years, because I really think the best way of looking at it is that there's been this kind of endless feedback loop that really began when Donald Trump announced his candidacy. Liberalism has reacted, you know, broadly defined, institutional liberalism, whatever you want to call it, you know, the Democratic Party, the liberal aligned media, that kind of thing has reacted to Trump and then also to kind of the populist left in the same way. And they've kind of repeated the same tactics and the same kind of reflexes over and over again, expecting a different result. And, you know, with this Iowa State Fair last weekend, it really occurred to me there are so many parallels between this moment right now and the exact same moment four years ago in the summer of 2015. You had a kind of presumptive Democratic front runner, a kind of heir apparent. You had the threat of this right-wing menace. Of course, the big difference being that the right-wing menace is now occupying the White House. You had all of the kind of courtiers and scribes uh, telling everybody, uh, don't worry, there's a master plan. You know, it'll actually be good if Donald Trump wins the Republican nomination because he'll be easy to beat. We got the most electable, experienced candidate ever. And there were shades of that in the predictable wave of apology for Biden that you saw as, as people started, you know, I think last weekend we finally hit critical mass and some members of the press and, and others were starting to kind of muse openly, maybe, maybe this campaign is actually pretty fragile. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a good piece in Time Magazine recently that kind of chronicled just what a shit show Biden's campaign campaign has been. It had this really uh, this really poor launch. The people around him were frustrated because he kept putting off when they were actually going to launch the campaign for months and months. You know, he was holding so few events that his campaign staff started to list meetings with his staff as events hmm. just to fill the schedule. But this weekend, all those things kind of added up thanks to all of these, uh, these so-called gaffes. 
And so you got this wave of apologia. And it was it's so reminiscent of 2015, right down to appearing at these gilded fundraisers and telling rich people, don't worry, things are going to be fine. I mean, I hear what you're saying about the gaffes, but then when the second place candidate comes out with a with a gratuitous swipe at the free press, <laughs> I mean, I, do, I see no other option, you know? <laughs> you know what's so amazing is that, I mean... It's almost Trump-like, I would say, <laughs> watching him go after so we'll, the Washington Post. We'll, we'll get into that. Yeah, so, you know, Bernie <laughs> Sanders had this, uh, this salvo against Jeff Bezos and his ownership of the Washington Post, and... You know, to uh, certain people in the Beltway, that's a bigger slight against the free press than, you know, it being owned by a handful of billionaires. But the incredible thing about the kind of Bernie-Biden rivalry, um, and, you know, I think Bernie uh, has some, you know, genuine claim to be kind of running second right now, is that according to the polling, insofar as it can be believed, a lot of, uh, you know, Biden's the second choice, the number one second choice of his current supporters is Bernie Sanders. Mm. It was amazing reading some of these kind of person on the street interviews with Biden supporters that were coming out of Iowa, because a lot of them don't actually sound like they have a great deal of confidence in him. It's just kind of, uh, well, you know, he's the he's the front runner. We have, you know, we have to support him. And, and, you know, hey, I mean, I might not agree with everything he says, but, you know, we need someone electable who can beat who can beat it, Donald Trump. So it's possible that they're perhaps rather low information voters. Biden and Sanders being sort of the most name recognition candidates. It's it's possible. And I mean, the thesis some people have had about Biden support for a long time is just that, well, hey, he's the most kind of famous one running because been around for ages. I mean, I think Biden's support is not monolithic and there are a few ways to interpret it. I mean, I think people need to understand that there's a probably not insignificant section of his support, which is just older, you know, white Democrats who are just as conservative as he is, mm -hmm. you know, and they just actually agree with the direction that, you know, that he embodies. And also they hope that he'll keep the damn kids off the lawn and, and you know, crush mm -hmm. this political correctness, you know, me too bullshit and all mm -hmm. that. Um, I think I think there's that. But I think more importantly, you know, you have all these kind of meta arguments where people are, you know, kind of seeming to imply that they're not actually dyed in the wool Biden supporters. And I do think you saw a certain amount of that with Hillary, just this aura of inevitability around her and people feeling like, well, hey, you know, I'd love to live in a world where Bernie Sanders could be president. But, you know, hey, we don't we don't live in that world. It's not a perfect world. Suffice it to say, I don't think Biden's campaign right now is really projecting the image of a confident front runner campaign. And as I say in my piece, we have seen this movie before. I mean, I think that in 2016, if Biden had been the nominee, there's a possibility he could have beaten Trump. Right now, there are polls suggesting that he could beat Trump. There are also polls suggesting Bernie Sanders could beat Trump, just as there were in 2016. But watching him, it's really hard to imagine that happening. Uh, there's no kind of elan to his campaign. There just doesn't seem to be any energy. There doesn't really seem to be any purpose to it. And on top of that, we've seen exactly this formula deployed against Trump before. We've seen exactly this type of candidate. And Biden is essentially running, if it's possible, you know, so far, a worse version of the Hillary Clinton campaign. And all of the problems that her campaign had seemed to be unfolding in Biden's, but in much faster motion. There was something in the message of her campaign that many interpreted as progressive. Do you mean that having the first woman president is a more, you know, much more compelling case than let's elect this old white guy who's been in the Senate since there were like segregationists in the Democratic Party? Yeah, certainly. And yeah. I mean, she struck a more liberal position on a lot of issues like same-sex marriage than she had in previous years. 
Yeah, I mean, Hillary Clinton, in her kind of poor, awkward way, understood that, you know, as a politician qua brand, you got to kind of be plugged into the spirit of the times a little more. And it's really hard to see how Biden, who, you know, a couple months into his campaign, uh, held up his relationship with avowed segregationist James Eastland (laughs) as being kind of plugged in. You know, I mean, the closest Hillary Clinton came to that was the time she decided to praise Nancy Reagan for her activism around oh, HIV yeah. AIDS. On oh, her friendship with uh, Kissinger. Right, right, uh-huh. right. But Hillary, like Biden is doing now, did absolutely, you know, celebrate her kind of relationship with Republicans and things. And by the time Trump became the nominee, you know, Hillary pivoted to this, uh, you know, despite there having been this kind of populist insurgency, which had seen nearly half of Democratic primary voters support a Democratic Socialist. She pivoted to the center, if you could say that, which is putting it generously. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the Democratic convention featured Michael Bloomberg. And the thrust of her campaign was, you know, we're going to keep the Obama coalition because we just deserve it and we're going to get it. Um, You know, Hillary keeps hot sauce in her bag, etc. And we're going to target these, you know, affluent, college-educated, kind of conservative-leading voters who are just going to be disgusted with Donald Trump. Think of the children. Um, And Joe Biden is doing exactly that kind of thing again, you know, all of these kind of wistful celebrations of Washington's lost era of bipartisanship, uh, appealing to Republicans are going to find their their souls, they're going to find their consciences, He's, he's running with that. And, you know, I'll just reiterate, we have seen exactly this script play out before. And if something doesn't interrupt it, if a if a wrench is not thrown into the works, uh, the same uh, disastrous result is going to follow. I agree we've seen a script before, a script where a demagogue sows a campaign of fear and division, where he attacks the fundamentals of democracy. Yes, I say the the fifth estate, the free press. (laughs) Democracy dies in the darkness, and how can you defend Stalingrad standards as he he suggests that, that the independent journalists keeping Trump to account are being given their marching orders by Jeff Bezos, who only bought the Washington Post because he wants to foster the free press. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think anybody looking at the U.S. media, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find, you know, unfair negative stories or biased coverage about Bernie Sanders, you know, you know, and you'd also find if you look through, you know, your favorite periodical from the past 30 years, you know, innumerable stories about, uh, you know, concentrations of corporate power and how they threaten democracy and how uh, big business is crushing the underclass and how there needs to be a $15 minimum wage. You'd, you'd find all that stuff. So, uh, and you'd find free Frequent TV appearances by, you know, Noam Chomsky and, and you know, all of the leading uh, public intellectuals and dissidents uh, on the left. So, I yeah, I, I just don't know what Bernie's talking about. The wealthiest about. Better, man Bernie. in the world bought the Washington Post for altruistic reasons. And he understands that in no way should the thing that he bought reflect his worldview. You know, as a, as a journalist myself, and in fact a master of journalism, according to no less than the Columbia Graduate School of <laughs> Journalism, something that a true journalist true dyed-in-the-wool journalist, a capital J journalist values is objectivity and neutrality. This is why we're rejecting Rupert Murdoch's bid to buy the Michael and us empire. (laughs) And so you would be suspicious of the candidates who um, really mean it, you know? And you would be suspicious of journalists who have an ideology, a point of view. Even though, as we all know, neutrality upholds the status quo. Mm -hmm. Neutrality is its own ideology. And also, if you're a journalist, you exist at the whims of a couple of billionaires. Uh, You live and die according to how they feel in the morning. Uh, So no wonder 
So no wonder most journalists are sympathetic with the Democratic establishment. The way that some of the, you know, Beltway talking heads reacted to what Sanders said, they kind of torqued what he said, or at least what he meant, by suggesting that the implication was that there was a kind of a conspiracy whereby Jeff Bezos is, you know, emailing directives to the newsroom at, at the newspapers he owns. Although for what it's worth, he does have a weekly conference call. With, with... <laughs> right. I mean, probably are, you know, there probably are examples of kind of direct interference, but well, there definitely are examples of direct interference by these oligarchs in the in the media organs that they own. But, you know, media bias works in, in a, a multitude of ways. I mean, journalism used to be a much more working class profession. And that's not a, you know, it's not kind of a saccharine thing that, you know, the socialist co-host of the show is saying. It's a, you know, it's a fact about the kinds of backgrounds people used to come from. You know, Matt Taibbi, a journalist I really like, once wrote that, you know, to be a reporter used to be like kind of being a plumber or something, mm-hmm. you know. And there used to be a lot more journalists because there used to be a lot more jobs in, in the industry before, mm-hmm. you know, kind of media concentration and wire services and various other things kind of uh, whittled, whittled them down. But now they come, as I did, out of journalism school. Right. And for that and for other reasons, the people that often occupy the media, you know, and obviously we're generalizing here, you know, they come from, they tend to come from kind of upper middle class backgrounds. They, you know, they come from privileged backgrounds and they they inhabit, you know, often privileged socioeconomic, you know, milieus. And it's no wonder that many of them kind of tend to channel the values and politics that people uh, in those milieus hold. There's also the larger structural fact that the newspaper business in particular, you know, the linchpin of the business model is advertising, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you are selling, if you run a newspaper, you are selling an audience to advertisers. And so this is just how the market works. You're going to tailor your message. You're going to tailor your content to the advertisers, and you're probably not going to want to run too afoul of them. And that's, that's one of the biggest problems with democratic media in a capitalist society. And none of that has anything to do with you know, individual journalists being dishonest or, you know, responding to directives from corporate paymasters. It's it's actually much more, it's, mu- it's on a much larger scale and it's much more insidious than that. Something that I just want to bring up that was in the news in Canada this week is an article in Canada Land by Sean Craig called You Must Be This Conservative to Ride, The Inside Story of Post Media's Right Turn, which is about how the new CEO of Post Media, Andrew McLeod, has essentially launched an unprecedented centralized effort to bring all of Post Media's papers in line and have them be sort of rigorously conservative in both their reporting and their editorials. And people listening in the United States won't probably be familiar with Post Media, but it's one of two or three kind of big media chains in Canada. And really since the, the kind of a collapse of, of local media, you know, if there if there's a local paper in a small or middle-sized town, you know, these days, you know, odds are it's owned by Post Media. The, you know, Post Media controls a huge, a huge stake in how people get the news in this country. There's a passage in here. Several editors at the National Post, Post Media's flagship newspaper with an explicitly conservative political mandate, where I reported on media from 2016 to 2017, were summoned to a meeting on the 12th floor of the company's headquarters. There, according to three sources familiar with the meeting, company president Andrew McLeod told them that their paper, which launched in 1998 to serve as the voice of thoughtful modern Canadian conservatism, and which many would argue remains so, under Conrad Black, for those not familiar, was insufficiently conservative. Some of the post-marquee columnists, albeit right-leaning, have tended to take a variety of positions on subjects ranging from carbon pricing to socio-cultural issues, and so editors were told the paper had to become more reliable in its conservative politics. 
So, I mean, this is a, another important thing to understand, you know, is that the ownership and control of these newspapers, I mean, there often is an explicit agenda of some kind being adopted. I mean, I, I have a, an inside story about another one of Canada's big newspapers, and the, maybe, I've, maybe I've told it before on the pod about, you know, the new editor-in-chief coming to the editorial board, um, which had only kind of one token lefty at that point. And basically saying, look, we're, we're making this a center-right newspaper. Uh, we're not interested in readers who make less than $100,000 a year. And that newspaper, which is a very important one in Canada, you know, has since, you know, turned into a kind of, you know, standard upper middle class kind of, uh, kind of newspaper. You know, it's a ton of content about, you know, kind of consumer affairs and, you know, financial matters and things that only people with kind of stock portfolios, you know, who live in Rosedale or Forest Hill uh, or Yorkville really care about. Um, they're just not interested in, in other kinds of readers. And, I, it, you know, you'd be very hard pressed to make an argument that the editorial coverage, you know, the coverage of current affairs um, in, in that paper hasn't suffered as a result. There's also the Toronto Sun, which has a pretty direct line from the Conservative Party on both the federal and provincial level and its own staff to the point where people pretty freely go from one to the other. Oh, yeah. I mean, so Sue Ann Levy, who is one of the most, you know, grotesque right wing columnists in, in Canada, um, you know, was a candidate for the, you know, in fact, uh, pr- ran in the same writing that I did at the provincial level for the Conservative Party. Or Mark Toohey, who, of course, was Rob Ford's chief of staff, is yeah. now an editor at the Toronto Sun. And, you know, Sun News, which was kind of the uh, the failed attempt to start a kind of Fox News North, a kind of con- populist conservative uh, TV channel. I mean, that was started by a guy that had worked in, in the prime minister's office under Stephen Harper. As newspapers are increasingly the vanity projects of the idle rich, it's only going to get worse. Yeah, if there isn't some serious trust busting in the next kind of 10 or 15 years, and I don't mean of uh, newspaper oligopolies specifically, but I mean just in general, if the if the economy continues to, if capital continues to concentrate and there continues to be greater and greater ownership by just a handful of large corporations, it's not unthinkable that you'll just see a kind of bifurcated media environment where, you know, in, in the United States, if you're Democrat, you, you kind of consume one set of media. If you're Republican, you consume the other. And the corporate structures and the media structures are just kind of interwoven with the party machinery. And the whole thing just becomes a total cesspool with, you know, absolutely no fealty to kind of basic democratic principles, basic principles of objectivity, anything like that. And I mean, obviously, some version of that kind of exists already. All you have to do uh, to see that is turn on, you know, Fox or MSNBC. If only we had an oligarch who would provide the people of this city with a daily paper that would tell the truth honestly. Quickly, simply, entertainingly, no special interests allowed to interfere with that truth and also provide readers with a fighting and tireless champion of their rights as citizens and human beings. A declaration of principles, if you will. Well, there was once an oligarch like this. His name was Charles Foster Kane, and he is the protagonist of Orson Welles' 1941 classic Citizen Kane. Perhaps you've heard of it. We we finally went there, you know, after a million weeks in a row of watching these kind of bargain basement documentaries about Howard Dean or whatever, we decided to uh, we decided to watch something that was kind of for us. And boy, did we have a good time. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what you'll think about Mr. Kane. I can't imagine. You see, I play the part myself. Well, Kane is a hero and a scoundrel, a no account and a swell guy, a great lover, a great American citizen and a dirty dog. It depends on who's talking about him. What's the real truth about Charles Foster Kane? 
I wish you'd come to this theater when Citizen Kane plays here and decide for yourself. I mean, where do you even begin with this movie? I'm assuming that unlike most of the things we watch, people listening will have actually seen it, so they'll be familiar with the kind of contours of the plot. I mean, possibly not, though. I mean, if anything, despite being the officially canonized greatest movie of all time, I think we may be at a point where Citizen Kane is almost underrated. People are very intimidated by greatest film of all time. Yeah, I mean, we all know that the greatest film of all time is The Dark Knight. Well, I mean, that that film raised the interesting question of what would you do if you were on that ferry boat? Would you, <laughs> would you blow it up or, or not? N- no such ethical questions exist in Citizen Kane. And also, um, why another movie about an old rich man? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the contours of the plot, uh, you got Orson Welles, uh, a mere 25 years old when he made the film. Yeah, as, breathtaking. Uh, Charles Foster Kane. I mean, why bother? <laughs> a man who inherited the world but lost his soul although as i get older i i realize <laughs> Reading from the time magazine right up are you he had no soul to begin with even because when i first saw this movie as a young man my interpretation of it was that yeah he was a, a good man corrupted by power right and i don't think that's the case i think he's a bit of a shit from the start it's easy that you, you know i can i can easily see how you'd have that that reading mm-hmm. because when the young cane this heir to this fortune who is a bit of a troublemaker we hear that he's thrown out of many colleges he's got this oligarch guardian that he's constantly uh, getting under the skin of right having been kind of pawned off to this guy uh, because his parents owed owed the guy money and uh, mr thatcher is his name and he wants young charlie to take responsibility of the empire that he's inherited but charlie says i don't care about any of that i don't care about mines i don't care about stocks what i really want is this newspaper we apparently acquired the new york inquirer i think it would be fun to run a newspaper and we see him and his two buddies mr leland and mr bernstein they take over this little nickel and dime new york newspaper and they're so full of piss and vinegar and exuberance and in fact uh, young charlie even writes this declaration of principles he's a populist fighting for the working man and because of all this at least on the first viewing i think one is inclined to be sympathetic to him yeah and you know when i was younger that shift starts to take place pretty much when he gets a mustache you know (laughs) um within about five years of taking over the paper he's taken all the staff from the biggest rival newspaper, The Chronicle. You were pointing out, as he started the paper, there's kind of no modern analog for the sort of lefty populist paper that he seems to be starting, except... Yeah, Gawker would be the closest <laughs> thing, right? Because now, like, almost every newspaper is owned by some, you know, grotesque billionaire or something. And there's some indication that, as with Gawker, he's interested you know, not just in the serious stuff. He wants uh, gossip. and Yeah, he wants to be... I mean, one of the things he says when he's reading his Declaration of Principles is that, you know, the news is also going to be... It's going to be accessible, but it's going to be entertaining as well. Mm-hmm. Although something that I, I realize now is he's a bit of a shit because he basically started the Spanish-American War just, <laughs> just for a laugh and to increase circulation, like in, in his early years. That's, mm-hmm. I think, a bit of a hint that this is not a good man. Yeah, and it's easy, that's a kind of subtle detail that's easy to miss. Because it's just sort of tossed side in the dialogue Mm -hmm. uh, of which there is much in this film (laughs) but then you know within five years of starting the newspaper he buys the staff from the august competitor newspaper and his friend jed leland is saying weren't these reporters also loyal to the chronicle at one point you know we've brought them over here and aren't they going to change charlie 
really, Charlie just wants to buy in. You know, he has no principles except himself. He wa- he wants to be the Chronicle, and he wants to have raised himself to the level of the Chronicle. Something that I don't think I picked up on the first time I saw this movie, this is maybe the fifth or sixth time at this point, but he says to his guardian, you know, there's a conversation between the two earlier in the movie when his guardian says, you know, you are a great man, and he kind of, you know, he's he kind of shrugs that off. He, he's asked something like, you know, what, what would it mean for you to be successful? And he says, to become everything you hate. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain amount of his life is just an expression of, you know, animus that he has towards this oligarch who adopted him and and wanting to kind of rebel against it because he doesn't feel like this was actually a life that he had chosen. There's another argument that he has with his guardian early on, the inquirer in the early days of Charles Foster Kane's ownership makes its reputation by going after the slumlords, the monopolies, and basically the businesses that Thatcher, the Guardian, is in. And they're having this argument where Kane says, you don't understand, there are two Charles Foster Canes. There's the one that has stocks in all of these businesses, and I agree, he should be run out of town. And uh, if you start a committee against him, I'll donate $1,000. But there's also the, the true champion of the working man, somebody who has to stand up for their interests. And it's good also that I'm the one who's standing up for their interests because I'm the one who has property. It's interesting. There's a mix of rather genuine noblesse oblige there, but also a oh, bit paternalism. of paternalism and, and also a bit of one senses, okay, wouldn't you rather it be me, the rich guy, the guy on the inside who's yeah. fighting for the working man rather than some genuine populist? Right. And then, of course, he runs for governor. Which is another turning point. He runs on a vaguely lefty populist platform in in a rather brilliant piece of visual storytelling we see the campaign in just two scenes where it starts with leland in this semi-grassroots style that's kind of rally speaking from a soapbox and like so many grassroots insurgents kane is just a rich guy yeah he's got the he's he's got his own newspapers (laughs) yeah and then we see Kane at a gigantic rally. He's now the front runner to replace the corrupt boss, the bo- boss Jim Geddes. Boss Jim Geddes, um, and he gives a speech where he outlines. He basically has no promises, mm-hmm. um, but the one promise he has is lock her up. <laughs> you know, right? He's going to indict Jim Geddes. Um, Kane's campaign collapses in shame when his affair with his mistress, Susan Alexander, is brought to light by boss Jim Geddes himself. And the big falling out scene between Kane and his lifelong friend, Jed Leland, comes when Leland gives this incredible speech. That's the way they want it. The people have made that choice. It's obvious the people prefer Jim Geddes to me. You talk about the people as though you own them. So they belong to you. As long as I can remember, you've talked about giving the people their rights as if you could make them a present of liberty as a reward for services rendered. Jed. Remember the working man? I'll get drunk too, Jedediah. It'll do any good. It won't do any good. Besides, you never get drunk. You used to write an awful lot about the working man. Oh, go on home. turning into something called organized labor. You're not going to like that one little bit when you find out it means that your working man expects something as his right, not as your gift, Charlie. When your precious, underprivileged really get together, oh boy, 
That's going to add up to something bigger than your privilege, and I don't know what you'll do. That is probably my favorite scene in the film. I think there's nothing that captures the flaw in the character of Charles Foster Kane better than that. In that scene, Kane says something like, well, the people have decided they clearly prefer Jim Geddes to me, which is what it comes down to. It's He's not really fighting for anything except... Public aggrandizement. Yeah, yeah v- validation. Yeah. And having failed at politics, he now pivots entirely away from it. Uh, he channels all of his energy and all of his resources, all of his media empire into fashioning an opera career out of his mistress-turned-wife, Susan Alexander. It's interestingly done, because she's not she's not a terrible singer, um, but she's just kind of a mediocre one who's not cut out to be a, you know, a star opera singer. Um, and she doesn't even particularly want to be one. He, he pushes her into it. And then, of course, he has his newspapers print effusive reviews of her of her shows and things like that. There's a scene earlier in the film, the famous scene where you see a, a montage of breakfasts between Kane and his first wife, where she says, really, Charles, people will think. And then he interrupts what I'll tell them to think. Yeah. <laughs> and then later in the film, there's a bit of an echo of that when Kane. Uh, walks in on Susan Alexander getting her vocal lesson by her impatient teacher. And the teacher says, I'll be the laughingstock of the musical world. And then Kane says, well, you know, I happen to be something of an expert in public opinion. I run a lot of newspapers, implying that he can shape public perception as much as he wants. Yeah, public opinion is just a, is a trifle that can be overcome with large amounts of money. And it's funny to watch the progression of his ambition from, from tackling the monopolies to elevating himself to the highest office in the land. There's indication that he wants to be president. And then when that fails, entirely turning his back on that, you know, William Randolph Hearst, of course, who this movie was partly based on, became a very uh, vigorous campaigner against such things as the income tax. <laughs> and then finally, his ambition falls towards simply making a star out of his wife, thereby legitimizing his failure in politics. It's, it's just this grand face-saving gesture. Susan Alexander, when there's the big confrontation with Jim Geddes, she says, well, what about me? I don't want to have my name dragged through the mud. And the minute she becomes involved with Kane, she just becomes a pawn in his life. She has very little control over her life. And I thought about this movie a lot during a week when there's so much pearl clutching over this assault on the free press. An actual populist attacking the, you know, the oligarchy. (laughs) Because 80 years ago, when you had journalists like William Randolph Hearst, it was and is widely understood that the media is often a vanity promotional project for the rich. We haven't talked, of course, about Rosebud, which is probably the most iconic thing from the movie. Well, I don't think any one word can sum up a man's life. I think we'll leave, uh, you know, interpretation of that particularly cryptic and iconic part of this movie to, to someone who really knows about cinema. Yeah, take it away. A lot of people don't really understand the significance of it. I'm not sure if anybody understands the significance, but I think the significance is bringing a lonely, rather sad figure back into his childhood. The word Rosebud, for whatever reason, has captivated moviegoers and movie watchers for so many years, and to this day is perhaps the single word. And perhaps if they came up with another word that meant the same thing, it wouldn't have worked. 
but Rosebud works. It was great revisiting this movie because um, it's it's uh, really great. <laughs> I mean, my God, it's a movie that's just firing on all cylinders. It's no Michael Moore hates America. <laughs> Within the first five minutes, where it lays on the march, it lays out the entire story in the first Incredible. five minutes. Um, with, just comes out guns blazing. You know, works on every possible <laughs> level. I mean. People who say this movie is overrated, it's like, what do you want from a movie? It, it, it's so entertaining. There's so much going on. But it was funny revisiting, too, because I'm very interested in Orson Welles and Citizen Kane, which, you know, of course, is, I guess, his signature achievement. It's almost receded in importance to me in recent years just because it's so iconic and there are so many other aspects of Welles's career to discover. You can pick any year of his life, and there's so much going on. You know, there's a really annoying popular mythology about Orson Welles, isn't there? Where it's implied that he kind of peaked with Citizen Kane and then spent, you know, the rest of his life in obscurity. You know, not unlike uh, Kane himself, some would say. It's funny you should say that, because I'm here holding the Warner Brothers Blu-ray of Citizen Kane, which comes with a collectible booklet. Uh, that, that has a brilliant essay which, which I see you've collected it says uh, I'm, I'm just reading part of it here although there were subsequent highs in Wells's career none ever came close to reaching the height of Citizen Kane one can look back at that year's Academy Awards and postulate that if Citizen Kane had won the best picture trophy it so clearly deserved its box office potential might have gone up considerably, and if Kane had made a solid profit, then perhaps Wells would not have been so readily dismissed the second time around. Regardless, the exuberance of the young director began to rapidly fade. And, uh, right, and he never made another good movie again. Uh. And uh, later on the next page, it says, And Wells continued to work at the craft of filmmaking until his death in 1985, trying in vain to recapture the magic of his youth, not so unlike Charles Foster Kane. <laughs> Boo! Who the fuck wrote this? Uh, it is anonymous, and, uh -huh. and deservedly so, yeah. I think. Well, I, I'd like to say to Michael and Us Nation, find out who wrote that and dox them. <laughs> I mean, it's not like he made Touch of Evil and Chimes at Midnight and F for Fake and <laughs> The Magnificent Ambersons and The Trial after that. Half of it, the other side of the wind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously a failed career. And also, the comparison to Charles Foster Kane, okay, you know, on the one hand, you've got an oligarch who, having failed at a vanity political career, uh, decided to launch to launch his wife into... Uh, yeah, like an astroturfed vanity project. Yeah. So That's not what Orson Welles did. You've got that versus a, a true artist and a genius struggling for his whole life, trying to piece together whatever money he could to make a string of masterpieces. Debasing himself by appearing <laughs> in the world's most embarrassing commercials. Ha <laughs> the French champagne. <laughs> But it's interesting, too, that this is what's in the official booklet on the official release of Citizen Kane. Unforgivable. Like, this is the official story. Is there any other filmmaker who would have something like that written about him in the official release of his signature movie? Because the idea that Wells was a failure and the idea that it was fundamentally his fault, he was self-destructive, is one of the central structural myths in Hollywood. Either the system failed Wells or Wells failed the system. And, you know, there's a great article by Jonathan Rosenbaum called Orson Welles' Ideological Challenge. 
where it lists a number of reasons why uh, his career poses a problem for those who would seek to create a a clear-cut narrative for it. I'll just read a, a bit of it. His first and second features, Citizen Kane and The Magnificent Ambersons, were studio releases, both made at and with the facilities at RKO, and this has led many recent commentators to regard Wells as an unsuccessful studio employee throughout his career, rather than as an independent filmmaker, successful or otherwise. Insofar as most film histories are written by industry apologists of one sort or another, this is an unexceptional conclusion, but not necessarily a correct one. To my mind, Wells always remained an independent who financed his own pictures whenever and however he could, and perhaps the only movie in his entire canon that qualifies as a Hollywood picture, pure and simple, for better or worse, is The Stranger. He points to other factors that make Wells a challenge, the fact that he was a combination of artist and entertainer, the fact that he often self-financed his own work, which is something of a taboo, the fact that he left so many of his works unfinished, works that he self-financed, the fact that many of his films exist in multiple versions, and the fact that he couldn't really function in the Hollywood studio system, all of this ideologically goes against what a successful filmmaker is supposed to be. And I guess the person who wrote that uh, that god-awful thing from the Blu-ray, if uh, Orson Welles had, you know, had a career like a lot of the auteurs of the of the new Hollywood of the 1970s, you know, where they made one good movie and then instantly became craven sellouts and made, you know, giant blockbusters. And then by the 1990s were just these kind of, you know, merchants presiding over vast empires of junk and paraphernalia. Yeah, like, I mean, uh, that's so, more like that's more like Kane than than Orson Welles was. A, a, a Francis Ford Coppola type, <laughs> if you will. I mean, George Lucas probably just lives in a giant mansion full of like Chewbacca costumes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It was Shakespeare who posed the question, what's in a name? And in modern-day commerce, the answer would be everything. When you buy a Nashua copier, you're also buying the fiercely proud reputation of the company whose copiers outsold all other plain paper copiers worldwide. Be assured that whichever Nashua model you select, the dependability goes in, then the name goes on. Nashua, your number one choice. Your brain has been in Biden land, and by contrast, my brain has been a bit twisted because I've been thinking nonstop about the clown prince of crime, the Joker. Whenever I go to the movies these days, I see the trailer for the new film, uh, uh, Dark Joker. <laughs> yeah, well, while other people uh, have had Epstein brain, you've had Joker brain. I've seen you tweet a variation of the same joke maybe a dozen times over the past two days. I've often seen the Joker, and I've and I thought, what what in a society could make a clown that evil? <laughs> How did the Joker become this way? And a new film seeks to answer that. And you know that the new Joker film uh, starring Joaquin Phoenix is serious because it has the same plot as Taxi Driver mixed with King of Comedy. <laughs> and because it has shares some DNA with those films, it's more legit. It's, it's, a real, it's a real Joker movie. As opposed to what it could have been, which is a fun movie about a clown who robs banks and has... Uh, big sacks of money with dollar signs on them and he and he escapes from prison by having a big catapult that jumps him over and then at the end he's tied up in front of police headquarters and he says i'll get you yet batman <laughs> that that's what it could have been but it's not that and it's great too because 
you know, yeah, I've I've seen The King of Comedy. I've seen Taxi Driver. They're fine. But what if you got the same story, but it had the Joker in it? You got it filtered <laughs> through the, the comic book characters that I love now. And I'm kind of hoping that, like, all of the 70s classics could be remade, but with a comic book character. Like, like could you get the conversation with Aquaman? Like Nashville, but it's just the the Avengers. Yeah, either there are thirty <laughs> Avengers superheroes um, interspersed in this sprawling story. <laughs> Sounds pretty twisted to me. Luke, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, so for folks in Toronto, you know, we've we've kind of kicked around the idea of doing a, a live show for a while, and uh, I do hope we'll get around to that at some point. But in the meantime, while Will and I are too lazy to do that, I will be speaking Wednesday, August 21st uh, at 7 p.m. at the House of Anansi Press bookstore. I'm going to be introducing a new volume by the late Canadian philosopher George Grant called Technology and Justice. Grant is someone I don't think we've talked about a lot, and he's somebody that American and probably most Canadian listeners won't be familiar with, but he was a unique kind of mid-century public intellectual, much more interesting than, you know, Canada's other big export from that time, Marshall McLuhan. In fact, actually, you know, I shouldn't say export because I'm not even sure, you know, how much Grant was read abroad. But Grant was a conservative philosopher who in some respects drifted uh, towards the left later in his life but uh, was also a kind of nationalist, but but in service in, in some respects to progressive causes. So he presents something of a kind of conundrum, uh, one which I'm going to try to parse a little bit at the House of Anansi Bookstore next week. So that's at 7 p.m. Uh, it's the House of Anansi Bookstore, lower level of 128 Sterling Road. If you're in Toronto, come out, say hi, meet one of the co-hosts of Michael and us in a, in a setting which I can assure you will be absolutely nothing like this show. So once again, that's on Wednesday, August the 21st, 128 Sterling Road in Toronto. Well, uh, on Saturday, I have a gig uh, singing karaoke at probably either the Owls Club or the uh, Bond Club. So uh, come on out and uh, hear me live in concert singing perhaps tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. <laughs> now watch this drive. There is a man, a certain man. And for the poor, you may be sure that he'll do all he can. Who is this one whose favorite son? Just by his action has the traction magnets on the run. Who likes to smoke, enjoys a joke, and wouldn't get a bit upset if he were really broke. With wealth and fame, he's still the same. I'll bet you five you're not alive if you don't know his name. happiness just struck lots of different notes. Citizen Kane was really about accumulation. And at the end of the accumulation, you see what happens, and it's not necessarily all positive. Not positive. I think you learn in Kane that maybe wealth isn't everything, because he had the wealth, but he didn't have the happiness. The table getting larger and larger and larger, with he and his wife getting further and further apart, as he got wealthier and wealthier, 
Perhaps I can understand that. The relationship that he had was not a good one for him. Probably not a great one for her, although there were benefits for her. But in the end, she was certainly not a happy camper. In real life, I believe that wealth does, in fact, isolate you from other people. It's a protective mechanism. You have your guard up, much more so than you would if you didn't have wealth. There was a great rise in Citizen Kane. And there was a modest fall. The fall wasn't a financial fall. The fall was a personal fall. But it was a fall nevertheless. So you had the highs and you had the lows. Now, if you could give Charles Foster Kane advice, what would you say to him? Get yourself a different woman. <laughs>